Well, it is very good to be with you. Uh, we're going to turn to the Bible now, to God's Word, and the passage I read, Matthew chapter 26, and I'm particularly looking at the verses 36 through to 46 as we consider Christ's agony. So thinking of this account in Gethsemane, before we do that, let's just pray once more for God's help. Lord, do be with us now. We turn to your word. We thank you for it. We thank you that it still speaks and we pray that it will speak to us today. You will help us to receive it. You will be preparing hearts. You will be helping me, Lord, and we look to you as I speak and as I preach and we pray that the Holy Spirit may take that word and do us each good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to looking, look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 36 to 46. Consider Christ's agony. Consider Christ. That's what we should do. It's what we should do in our lives, isn't it? Day by day. That's what I want to do this morning. I want to think about the person of Jesus Christ. As we think of that, we must always remember he is truly a man. And he is truly God. It's not part and part. He's 100% man and 100% God. As we think of his life, we see his characteristics. We can read of that. We can consider his humility. We could look at Christ like that, and that's good to do. We could consider certain things which he did. People he met. Miracles that he did. We can reflect on him. But this morning, I want to particularly reflect on this account in Gethsemane, because we talk about Christ's person, who he is. We also talk about Christ's work, what he came to do. Now, he did live a sinless life. That was vital. But he came especially to die on the cross. And in his life, in his ministry, you will see that that was always his focus. You always knew that's where he was heading. And we read in Hebrews chapter 12, I Put as a title, Consider Christ's Agony, but we read in verse 3 there, Consider him, that's consider Christ, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. So Christ endured so much, but then notice what it says at the end of verse 3, Hebrews 12, this is, So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So this morning, let us consider Christ. Perhaps you are weary, perhaps you are faint-hearted, perhaps there's been struggles this week, but consider Christ. Think of his suffering, think of what he did. And then, yes, may we be not weary and faint-hearted, but encouraged and strong in the Lord. Well, we must think about his work then, the work of Jesus Christ. And these events, as I said, lead up to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And as we think about that, we must ask questions. What does it mean? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for you? And it's important to keep in mind that this Jesus, this Christ we're considering, he is the saviour. He came as a result of the Father's love, which we sung. He came to demonstrate that love on the cross. And his saving love transcends all that he did. Because why did he go to the cross? He went to the cross to save sinners. So as we look in these 
chapters leading up to the cross, we see that Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's already ridden on that donkey. He's come into Jerusalem. He's with his disciples. Judas has agreed to betray him. Uh, and we see that betrayal. We read of that. We read that Jesus knew. He knows all things. He is God. But Peter would betray him. And we see the events leading up to that. And we see that he is speaking to his disciples. And we have that, especially in John's Gospel, shortly before he died. Well, they were all adamant, weren't they? It wasn't just Peter. They were all adamant. They wouldn't betray Jesus. Are you really sure, Peter, we would ask him? He was sure, wasn't he? But Jesus knows the truth. Peter would deny him. Judas would betray him. He knows all these things. But I want to consider particularly this Garden of Gethsemane, Christ's agony in the garden. And you will find there as we read that he is there with his three disciples, Peter, the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. It's a place of sorrow. It's a place where Matthew and records it, but also Mark and Luke as well. And we're going to ask some questions this morning as we think about this passage, not just what is happening, because yes, Jesus is in agony, but why? And what does it mean? How does it have relevance to you and I? Does it have any relevance to the cross, which was to take place shortly after? So I want to consider Jesus Christ. And think first of all, so four questions to think about, a bit longer on the first one. What was Jesus doing? As we think about the garden, what was Jesus doing? Well, essentially, he is being prepared for the cross. Jesus knows what lies ahead of him. He knew the trials. He knew what Peter would do. He knew what Judas was going to do. He knew the suffering. He knows He's God. And the cross was a great burden. It was the supreme act that he had come to accomplish. It's the reason why he'd come into the world. And as he thinks about it, perhaps you have something really, really hard ahead of you, difficult. Well, does Jesus shrink from that? Sometimes we think, well, is there a way out? Can I do it differently? But Jesus didn't shrink from it, did he? But that doesn't mean to say it was easy. He's human. We've noticed that. And the intensity, the enormity of the suffering in this garden is weighing heavily upon him. And when you have a great burden, what do you do? Well, you should pray, shouldn't you? You sing, sing sometimes in the hymn. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And what does Jesus do here? We see him praying. He did that often in his ministry, in his life. He prayed. What a privilege that is. So just notice the place. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's at the foot of the Mount of Olives. It's in Jerusalem on the outskirts of the inner city. Uh, the Mount of Olives has olive trees and Gethsemane was a garden, would have had olive trees and olive grove in it. And so there Jesus is praying. So what does he do? Well, he, he takes two, three of his disciples with him. We read he began to be sorrowful and, and, and troubled. But first of all, notice in verse 38, he says, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he rose a little further and he falls on his face 
and he prays. He's sorrowful. He wants them to watch. And we read that he fell on his face. This prayer is a contrast to the prayer we have recorded in John 17, which was about the same time, just slightly after. Uh, This is a contrast. Here Jesus is praying. Here he is troubled in his prayer. And then notice what he says. He says in verse 39, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So the cup, what is that? That is what lies ahead of him. It's the par four events. It's a phrase, a word he uses to describe what was going to happen. And he knew what was going to happen. The cross was ahead of him. This was what God had prepared for him. The cross, that was his cup. That was the event. That was going what God had prepared for him. And as he considered it, he was sorrowful. And as he considered, he prayed. And he didn't pray just once, did he? He prays a second time, we read in verse 42. There was this weight of sorrow on his heart. And he prays again a third time. He prays the same words each time, we're told. Notice in verse 44, we read, So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Does this suggest anything else? Well, he's praying but he's humbling himself before God, his Father. And what is he praying? He's praying that if it's possible, could he avoid going through this crucifixion? Now, if you know your Bible, you know the answer. Jesus knew the answer. It wasn't possible. This was the way. But here in his humanity... The enormity of what lies ahead of him, the burden of the cross is weighing on him. That's why he was in agony in this garden. The enormity of what was to take place was weighing on him. And he makes this request to his father. But notice what else he adds in that verse 39. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Nevertheless is one of those quite long words, which is very hard to phrase in any other way, but it says what it says, doesn't it? Nevertheless, Jesus is willing to do his Father, God his Father's will. That's the bottom line we say sometimes. He didn't want to go through this in his humanity. He realised the enormity of the burden that was on him and the agony he would face, and yet, in spite of that, He is saying, I am willing to submit to my Father in heaven. Here is obedience and submission. It is so easy, isn't it, in our lives to want your will, your way. Society today encourages an individualistic approach to things. So it's about me and what I want, my life. You hear that, but you don't hear that from Christ's lips, do you? He says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And we know that was true in all Jesus' life. Think of the Lord's Prayer as we call it. He says, your will be done. Jesus came to do the will of his Father. He came to fulfil this great plan of salvation 
And he knew that he was going to die on the cross. So there is great humility here. We read in Philippians, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's his obedience. It was a full and total obedience, even to the death on a cross. Some may ask as we read these verses, as Jesus was praying, was Jesus looking for an escape route? Well, he prayed three times, people might comment. But just notice a verse, we read it in John's Gospel, chapter 12 and verse 27, uh, where this is what Jesus says then. John 12, 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. So that's his thinking. What should he say? But then he adds, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. So in his humanity, he wants to be saved from it, but he recognises, but for this purpose, this hour, the hour sometimes is used to illustrate this time, this moment, the cross. That's why Jesus had come. Well, On the one hand, he desires that this great suffering, which he knows is coming, will be removed. But on the other, he is willing to submit to his father. And just think about it. Had Jesus not been submissive, then creation would have been left subject to Satan. Heaven would not be populated by people from all tribes and nations because there would have been no salvation. God's purpose would have not been fulfilled. Had Jesus not gone to the cross, there would be no gospel good news. It's unthinkable, isn't it? And Jesus, despite his agony, knows what is ahead and is willing to obey his Father. He's humbling himself. Here is perfect obedience. Here is submission to his Father's will. And he recognises the ultimate purpose of the cross. So sometimes we ask Why did Jesus come? And Jesus answers himself. He came into the world to save sinners. And it's a wonderful truth. That's why Jesus came. That's why you must consider him. And does that consider that, does that cause you to want to know more about him? More about this Jesus? More importantly, do you see that you as a sinner can come to this Jesus, this saviour? And on the cross, He died to forgive your sins. Do you know that in a personal way? What a wonderful saviour we have. So we thought about uh, that question. What was Jesus doing here in the garden? But secondly, think a bit more. What was Jesus' experience in the garden? It was an intense experience. All three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, show this clearly. We notice some of the words. And I ask Can we, can you and I, grasp the enormity of this suffering? I would suggest to you, you may have suffered at times, but no one can truly grasp the depth of this suffering. And in a moment, I'll give some reasons for this. It was an intense experience. But notice the words in verse 37 here. What is the experience of Jesus? We read, he began to be sorrowful, and troubled. His soul was pressed upon with this sorrow. 
These words indicate a restlessness. In his humanity, he would not have wanted to be here. That's why he prayed. And then in verse 38, we read more emphasis. He said, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. So the agony, the anguish is unfathomable. His physical frame was unable to bear it. And in Luke's gospel, we're told that an angel was sent to uphold him, to keep him. Because of the physical agony, he was suffering. So why is he so sorrowful? Why is this experience so intense? These are deep things. God has revealed what we need to know. We have the Bible, but we cannot fully comprehend the depth of this. We cannot see fully into the mind of Jesus at this time. But his death, such a cruel death of crucifixion on the cross was approaching. And I would suggest that this sorrow is all bound up with the work of salvation which he was to accomplish on the cross. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. But now in his humanity, as he thinks of what lies ahead, he is exceedingly sorrowful. Other words for the use, Mark in his gospel says deeply distressed as well as troubled. As I've mentioned in Luke, uses the word agony. We can get a picture, can't we, to describe this experience. This is what we are considering here, the agony of the Lord Jesus Christ. And such was his agony, we read in Luke's Gospel, um, Luke twenty-two forty-four. his sweat became like great drops of blood. Such was the intensity of the suffering. Perhaps in a moment of trouble or worry or anxiety, something comes upon you. You sweat more intensely than you have done because it suddenly dawns on you, something you realise, you've Perhaps not done something you should have done. Well, there's something of that, but this is far deeper than that. Jesus sweat great drops of blood. He is suffering more than anyone else. There's no parallel between his suffering, his suffering which was to come. He was reflecting on that suffering on the cross that was to become. And as we think about it, we can see that no one has gone through the suffering that Christ went through. There are martyrs for the cause of Christ. Today, there will be some who will be confronted with that. Renounce your faith or you'll be killed or you'll be tortured. And they've chosen the pathway to honour Christ. Years ago in the UK, there were those who were burnt, tied to a wooden stake and burnt because they would not renounce the Bible and Jesus Christ. They suffered great suffering. But I would suggest that Jesus' suffering is greater. And if you, in a time of sorrow and distress, turn to the Lord, and that's your privilege, that's my privilege, isn't it? If you rely on him, if you turn to him, that is a wonderful blessing. He has promised not to leave us or forsake us. So as we see this suffering, there's an intensity here. But I would also suggest there is a mystery. In other words, there's things we don't know fully. They're not recorded for us. And we need to grasp this. So what is Jesus doing here? What is his experience? Faced with the 
suffering on the cross which was to come, with that great work which was to come, he here, as he prays about it and reflects on it, is in agony. He is submitting to God's will. As he reflects and prays, this sorrow and this distress, this deep trouble intensifies. But he was not deflecting. Despite this increased intensity, he was set for the pathway of the cross which was ahead of him. But then let's think a bit more about it. Thirdly, to ask, what made Jesus sorrowful? I would suggest it was, it is all bound up with his impending death. Perhaps it was the fear of death. Understandably, there is a fear of death. For believers, there is that blessed hope that awaits. But unbelievers, there is a, a great fear of death. But it wasn't that. So it was something more than that. I would notice three things that make Jesus sorrowful. Firstly, the renewed attack of Satan. Shortly after this prayer, Jesus was arrested. Just going to notice what we read in Luke's Gospel, uh, Luke 22, Luke's account, verse 53. He refers in these verses to Satan. So, Luke 22, verse 53. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. So the power of darkness is referred to. Who is the prince of darkness? It is Satan. Satan is here in the Garden of Gethsemane, having, as it were, his final attack on Jesus to try and move him away from the cross. He opposes Jesus with all his power. Satan knows that his defeat is coming. On the cross, Satan was defeated. He's still active. He's still around. He's still the enemy of Christians. But on the cross, the final defeat of Satan was confirmed. Jesus defeated him. And Satan knows that. And now, knowing that, he makes this unprecedented attack on Jesus Christ. This is what is happening. This is why there is this intense suffering. But let us praise God. Jesus overcame. Jesus is greater than Satan. And because he overcame, every believer, if you're trusting Jesus Christ today, you will overcome because Christ has overcome for you. That is a wonderful blessing. So there is here... A renewed attack, the power of darkness. Satan is attacking Jesus Christ. But as we think about what made Jesus sorrowful, secondly, I think to notice this, the anticipation of bearing his people's sins. Think for a moment why Christ dies. Was it because he deserved it? Was it because he's a criminal, criminal of all criminals, and he deserved that cruel Roman death of crucifixion? Was it because he'd sinned? No, none of that. It was not that, was it? Didn't deserve it. He wasn't a sinner. I would suggest to you that the reason for this great sorrow in the Garden of Gethsemane, this agony, 
was the burden of the sins for all he was to die for. As he reflected on what would take place and the weight of sin that would be on him and that agony, that greater agony still he would know on the cross, he was moved to sweat these great drops of blood. Think about it. The anger of God. God who is holy, that just anger, in his perfect holiness, he was to pour out his wrath on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not because Jesus had done wrong, but because there in that great transaction, Jesus was suffering in the place of sinners. The sin which was imputed to him. And Jesus now in the garden is praying. He knows what is ahead. And he sees the enormity of that sin which is to be laid on him and the anger of his father. He's weighed down by the greatness of this sin. This is a unique agony. No one else has ever known agony like this. One writer said, his holy nature shrank, not from death as death, but from the cursed death which was the punishment for his people's sin, which was imputed to him. You see, Jesus knew what was to take place on the cross. He knew that he was to become a curse. He was to become sin for all who trust him. He's paying the price. And as we reflect then on this reason, what made Jesus sorrowful as he's thinking on this burden of sin let us rejoice again if you're a believer he's paying the price for your sin his agony is for you if you have put your trust in him so what makes Jesus sorrowful first thing I would suggest and connected to what I've just said this this anticipation of the anger of God's wrath on sin in the garden here Jesus anticipated the turning away of his father's face. Jesus had known perfect fellowship with his father. He prayed to his father regularly. But what did he feel now? He felt forsaken. That's why he had this prayer. If it were possible, let this cup depart from me. He thinks of that great task which is ahead on the cross and that suffering. And in those three hours of darkness, his father would turn his face away from him. And as he reflects on, the, on that fact, that he would not for that time have fellowship with his father, we can see the agony that he has. He felt forsaken by his father. And yet, he had to fulfil this great task of redemption. He felt alone. On the cross it was greater. But here, he's praying and pleading. On the cross, Jesus bore the sin alone. Yes, there were two others alongside, but no one could indeed enter in to the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know that if you're doing anything, especially something important, especially something involving responsibility, you know that if you're alone, if you have that responsibility alone, that's much harder. And Jesus is to know that Ahead of him lies the cross and he would be 
alone. That's why after that three hours of darkness on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what he felt. But he had paid that price for sin. Well, Jesus knew his purpose was the cross. He knew of the great plan of salvation. But now as he prayed, the anticipation of that meant that he was sorrowful and his soul was in agony. Jesus had prayed, your will be done. Let's just notice that. He, he says that in the Lord's Prayer, but again in the end of verse 39, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That was his prayer. Was that prayer answered? It was answered, wasn't it? God's will was done. Jesus did go to the cross. He needed to go to the cross. He did accomplish salvation. He did show such great redeeming love, a full love, amazing love, love which you and I can't measure. He showed that in the deepest way. He went to the cross. So the prayers of the Lord Jesus that this cup might depart, God the Father said, no, you're going to go through because this is the way. This is our plan, the plan of salvation. What love of Jesus. And if you know that love, do you respond in love? That's what God calls us to do, doesn't it? If you know the love of Christ, you are to respond in love to him and in love to others. Well, fourthly, final four, I'm just going to think, what can we learn from Jesus? As we've reflected on this account, if we consider Jesus, what can we learn? Well, first of all, we can pray. Jesus told his three disciples, watch and pray. Jesus is an example of prayer. Prayer is a wonderful privilege. You can communicate with Almighty God. You can praise God. You can take your petitions to God. I wonder if you use this privilege. Jesus, our example, he went to his Father at times of need. If you had access to someone important, if you could have influence with someone important, if they told you that you had their ear, if a Prime Minister said you could go in, that would be good. We could give him some Christian teaching, couldn't it? And we could speak to him and he would listen to us. What a privilege. But you have a privilege. You can go to your father in heaven. So you and I, we're to use this blessing. And perhaps as we think about prayer, this passage teaches us that it's in the times of trouble we shouldn't just pray in times of trouble, but in times of trouble, what a privilege it is to pray. What a blessing it is to pray in those times. And perhaps you have troubles, things you can't work out, things you can't solve. Perhaps they involve other people. Perhaps there's just no solution. You've tried this and that and you're praying. Well, continue to pray. Take it to God. Pray about it. Nothing is too small. Nothing is too big. You can pray to God in times of trouble. So we learn as we look at Gethsemane. You are to pray believing God is able to answer. You are to pray as Jesus does, accepting God's will. He may have a different purpose, a different way, a better way. But you pray submitting to his will. So we can learn we need to pray. But also as we read here, 
we are to watch as well as pray. So as we look at these verses, we could look at verse 31. When they had fallen asleep, the disciples, because they couldn't keep praying, they couldn't stay awake, we read in verse uh, 40. So he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So important, isn't it, to watch and pray that we do not enter into temptation. And uh, earlier in verse 38, Jesus has said to them, watch with me. We are to watch. Prayer should not mean that you are inactive. Watching isn't inactive. It's something you need to do. Think of a soldier on duty. He's guarding something. Perhaps he's the sentry. It's his job to watch. It's not just a thing he walks up and down sometimes and stands. No, he's got a purpose. He is to watch. He's a guard. It's his duty. You have a duty to watch and pray. Did they manage to watch? Well, they didn't, did they? Because they fell asleep. Just notice that. So why are we to watch and pray? Well, Jesus says, because you're so liable. We're so liable to enter into temptation. In the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. So we must watch. Jesus said that. He reminds us of it here. Now, that doesn't mean to say, because you've prayed, you can get as close to temptation as you think. No, watching means you see what there may be a problem. You see that your heart is sinful and you know that you need to avoid certain things, for instance. So you must watch. We can be tempted. We all have weaknesses. That's why we need to watch. We all have a sinful nature. And if you think of your weaknesses, then think about them and watch very carefully when you get into a situation when you might be tempted to do something which is sinful before God. We need to watch. So when we're tempted, we can resist with God's help. It's part of watching. There's another reason why we're so liable to fall into sin. It's not just Satan. We mentioned that. The power of darkness. But it's our own (coughs) sinful nature, isn't it? It's our own sinful flesh. A Christian, we want to do good. The Apostle Paul expressed it. When I would do good, evil is present with me. He was still knowing that (coughs) there was a temptation. And yes, a believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. But sin still survives in us. And how did Jesus put it here? He said, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Verse 41. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh, the sinful flesh is weak. You know that. So you need to guard, you need to watch, you need to pray. So think about yourself. Those who think it's, we have Proverbs, don't we, about pride and the fall and the destruction that comes. Well, those who think they can manage on their own, well, they're heading for a fall. We need to turn to God. We need to watch and we need to pray. And watching means you look out for your spiritual good. You seek to feed yourself by reading the Bible and praying. You keep a tender conscience before God. So easy to fall. And the disciples, they meant to stay awake. They didn't mean to forsake Jesus. 
Later, as Jesus, Peter denied Jesus, but they all forsook him and fled. They weren't watching. They weren't praying. So we need to watch as well as pray. And we have that again in verse 35, when he came to the disciples. Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand of the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. They needed to watch and pray. But what else do we need to learn? Finally, we also need to learn we need to submit to God. Jesus is the supreme example. We thought of his obedience, his submission to God's will. And as you look at verse 39 here, I wonder if you can say that. Not as I will, but as you will. I wonder if you can say that. Sometimes you want something. But can you submit to God, God's way, which might be different from your way? Can you say, your will be done? It isn't easy. You may have plans for your life. You may have ideas for your life. That's not wrong. It's not wrong to do all for the glory of God, to live our lives. It's not wrong to be self-sufficient in one sense. But in another sense, it is because we must be submissive to the will of God. God may have different ideas. And I wonder how you will cope with setbacks or disappointments then. I wonder if you'll grumble and complain. Or if you'll be willing to say that you submit to God's will. Not my will, but as you will we read here. Well, we pray that God will help us in life, in difficulties, in struggles, to be submissive. Life may not bring all that you want. It may bring opposition. Jesus warned his disciples, there are for Christians around our world, as I pray, great opposition. They are still to do God's will. So whatever trial, whatever suffering, whatever struggle you may have, Can you still look to God and say, your will will be done? Well, that's what Jesus is teaching here as well. I think we can learn we are to submit to the will of God. So let me conclude. We are to consider Jesus. There's many reasons to consider him. He is the only saviour. Without him, there is no hope. You are lost. He is the saviour. We must turn. We must trust in him. And confess our sin to God. And this agony of the Lord Jesus in Gethsemane has so much to teach us. We are to consider his suffering. We are to learn the lessons he wants us to learn. But I began and let me finish. As I, I read in um, those verses, uh, verse, verse 3 in Hebrews 12, where we reconsider him. But let me just read a bit before. What are you and I to do? We're to go on in our life. And as we read here in Hebrews, it says, let us, so Hebrews 12 verse 1, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. So all those sins, we've got to put those aside. Then what are we to do? Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let us consider great Christ and not grow weary or faint-hearted. Well, may God bless his word to us each. Amen.